If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. You're with Chris Smith on today's News Talk Radio. TNT. Let's get to the second hour of the program. You know, sometimes I like to see eventualities occur after they were tipped off to us by some of our commentators and correspondents. And one of the people I've been speaking to on a regular basis each and every Friday about what's happening in Gaza, if you've caught up with him, you'd know who I'm talking about, Shane Healy, the former ADF intelligence officer and a man who fought and taught in the Middle East. He knows about urban warfare. He knows about terrorist groups and he knows what's going on at the moment. And he's got an incredible contact network. Well, last Friday, he told us that the United States was trying to get together an international naval armada. So some of the biggest Western countries providing destroyers and other ships um, to fend off what was going on from the Houthis and others um, separate to what was going on in Gaza. Well, sure enough, on Monday, exactly what Shane Healy told us on this program on Friday took place. The story goes this. The United States attempting to contain the spread of Israel's war in Gaza is pitching allies on expanding a multinational naval task force to address an alarming rise in attacks on commercial vehicles travelling near Yemen that have posed a significant threat to global shipping. And there was another attack in the last 24 hours. The White House says it's a natural response after the Houthis, a Yemeni militant group aligned with Iran have fired missiles and one-way drones at several ships and hijacked at least one in recent weeks. But it remains unclear whether the US and its partners will be able to deter the Houthis or tamp down Israel's demands for forceful action. Um, Suffice to say it's on. So there's talks going on between the ADF, the UK uh, naval force and also the United States to try and get an armada of a multinational or a multi-international task force in those areas to make sure that shipping can continue, that, that, you know, goods and even humanitarian aid can come through those channels and arrive in Israel and that Israel can continue to do its business as it should be allowed to do. So it's interesting. No uh, no talk from Australia or the UK about that as yet, but Shane tipped us off. And we'll speak to him on the program this week, I promise you. Now, I just want to read you something from uh, a social column from the Sydney Morning Herald this morning uh, to give you an update on what I've been up to, just for a second, just before we get to Holly Hughes. It comes from a, a column in the Sydney Morning Herald called CBD, and it reads... Sober Smith. The behaviour of former Sky News ranter Chris Smith at the broadcaster's Christmas bash last year, Smith was stood down after allegedly making lewd comments towards a younger female staff member after a long session at the Ivy, has been much discussed in the 12 months since. I haven't heard too much said about it, but anyway. So we're happy to be able to report that Smith, who swore off alcohol after his sacking, has remained on the wagon celebrating a full 365 days sober on Monday, telling his followers on socials that the barbecues and parties this month have never been better. 
unsurprisingly, and thanking the friends and family who helped on the journey. Now, a jump right out at us at CBD that Smith is still being invited to festive season parties, which will no doubt be tidings of comfort and joy to his former Sky News colleagues, whose bosses have banned seasonal soirees this year after what Smith did last Christmas. I can't believe that they banned Christmas parties. I don't work with them anymore, so they didn't have too many problems. Uh, but that is the news. Um, I have reached the 365-day mark. I'm extremely proud of that. It has not been easy, probably one of the hardest things I've ever, ever done. Uh, the last three months have been much easier, and it's getting easier by the day, and it's a great landmark. It's a, it's something that I can use as a foundation to, to enjoy my life a lot better and uh, get through what has been a terrible, terrible period. And I don't just mean in the last 12 months. It's been... 20 years of drama associated with alcohol that I can now look ahead and forget about and move on and learn from, which is exactly what I intend to do. So there you go. A bit of a mention this morning. I thought that was a good way to get to it. And thank you once again for so many listeners who listen and watch this particular program who've been helpful through that period, giving me uh, inspiration and motivation, which is exactly what you need when you uh, try and clean yourself up over a 12-month period. This is TNT Radio. The facts. No spin or agenda. Not enough with the lies. We need the facts. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. I've got a Liberal Party senator for New South Wales, one Holly Hughes on the line right now. Do we say Merry Christmas to each other? We should, shouldn't we? Absolutely. It is coming right to the end of the work year and Christmas is upon us. So Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas to you. To you and, and to everyone. Yeah, fantastic. Does it feel like Christmas to you? Uh, it feels like the end of a very long year is what it feels like. I don't know whether, yeah, it started, I mean, I've had the tree up for a while. I do enjoy Christmas. So, uh, but I got myself pretty organised because I knew we were sitting quite late into the year and there was, you know, I'm just, I'm still going up until next week, uh, until the end of next week. So a lot of my shopping's done, but oh, I think good. I think I'll have more of a panic come 23rd, 24th before I have 18 adults to send on my house. Oh, that will be fun. Look, it's it's interesting. What is it? Monday, uh, Christmas Day is Monday. Mm. That gives people that really good period over the weekend to catch up and do last-minute stuff, which sometimes we don't have the um, – the chance to do you know if it's a thursday or a wednesday we mm. kind of work i can out. tell you though i went via qvb today i had to uh go and pick up a few staff christmas presents on my yep. way into the office and uh it is busy out there so uh don't wait because i have a feeling as we know these crowds always seem to increase the closer we get to christmas and if you're like me and want to just get in get out it's it's not ideal at the moment already yeah. okay We'll, we'll heed that uh, advice. Now, I keep hearing the Treasurer of Australia report on the economy. I keep hearing him talk about what the Labor government intends to do. Um, but he's terribly short on actually doing stuff, as most Australians know, because they've done bugger all about inflation. He's now saying, oh, it's about modernisation. It's about maximisation, whatever that is. Um, it's about Middle Australia. Well, he had to mention Middle Australia because he's not in the good books with Middle Australia, is he? Well, what this government has managed to do is in within 18 months, they've fundamentally created a working poor in Australia. And mm. certainly in my lifetime, I've, I've never seen it at a situation like this where people are 
in well-paying full-time jobs, quite often to parents in a family. But because of this government's actions, the average family is having to find an extra $25,000 a year when it comes to, the, to mortgage repayments. That is $25,000 a year after tax. Now, if you're a policeman and a nurse or a teacher and a paramedic, where do you find that money? It's not... Uh, an easy task for anyone. Uh, and so this government has actually managed to generate a working poor. So I think he's sort of mischaracterising what middle Australia is looking like. I find it difficult to reconcile when he talks about modernisation, when he's got Chris Bowen over there saying it's the end of fossil fuels and we're a resource-rich nation. Like everything they're doing is cutting our economy, it's removing industry from Australia, the safeguard mechanism, all the work that they're doing in these sort of what they call emissions reductions, whilst we're seeing emissions actually increase under them. But everything they're doing is making it harder for business to stay onshore, yeah. uh, for Australian jobs to stay here. So if he means by modernising our economy, sending us back to the dark ages, well, that's one way to look at it. But it's certainly not going to be a future filled with mining, the resources sector, with manufacturing uh, or heavy industry if Chris Bowen, who is still a part of this government, gets his back. Yeah, you're right there. Uh, the government's migration plan, however, has some redeeming points, um, some of which I've got to say have been copied from your boss, opposition leader mm -hmm. Peter Dutton. Uh, but halving migration is a good start, right? Yeah. Oh, look, absolutely. But the thing about Labor is they never know how to manage a migration program. Uh, when the coalition's in, we like to, to run a very targeted migration program. So you get skilled workers and have visa uh, conditions that mean that they have to be based in rural and regional areas, that they have to go to the areas where those jobs exist and the workers need to go and fill them. Uh, Yet again, we see a very uh, haphazard way of them approaching this. I find it extraordinary as well that they've announced this starting on Saturday after the parliament rose Thursday night. Uh, when the, Claire O'Neill has had this report, has had this review since April. So April through to December, they had oh. nothing to say about it. And, you know, all of a sudden they've got a lot to say. And, I mean, I... I Chris, you know what it's like at this time of year. Are people still listening? You know, are people still really engaging? No. Um, I don't know about you, but my diary is just packed full yeah. with different events and, and you know, out at different uh, sort of Christmas lunches, Christmas dinners, Christmas drinks, and as well as trying to figure out how you're going to cook dinner for 18 people on Christmas Day and yeah. have all the presents for the kids and get yourself packed and in the car ready to go away straight after. You know, there's all of that stuff going on. So people's engagement tends to be less at this point in time. And if you're a family who's had to find that $25,000 to keep the roof over your head, this is a tight Christmas. Mm. And, you know, are you sitting around listening to these guys? who are talking about things in the next two, three, four, five years uh, that, you know, have, have put more people coming in, putting more pressure on the housing situation. We've heard construction come out today and say that where they've been classified is only going to add to the housing crisis because yeah. we've still got a lot of people that have arrived here, a lot of people still coming, and now we haven't prioritised getting those in the construction sector here that can actually build that housing that we need. So Good point, good mm. point. We, we've spoken previously about the detainee debacle 
And the fact that the government wasn't prepared for what came out of the High Court, and when they did act, they acted contrary to what the High Court said, and then they wouldn't apologise for the acts of crime that were committed by these detainees, and then they did apologise. So it was a complete chaos. Well, this almost developed again in reference to a high-risk terror offender by the name of Ibrahim Ghazawi. This is an exclusive story in The Australian today. Um, now, he has refused to renounce violence in all contexts. This guy is a complete and utter danger to everyone. Mm. He was quietly released for Hunter from the uh, Hunter Correctional Facility on Saturday after serving an eight-year sentence. He's previously committed violent jihad. He's plotted to form an army at the bottom of the Blue Mountains to attack the AFP headquarters. Government lawyers turned up at the 11th hour to apply a supervision order on him just before his sentence expired. As your Liberal colleague, Michaela Cash, said, the incompetence of this government around matters of national security and safety of Australians knows no bounds. This is Claire O'Neill's portfolio. She's well, up for it. It's, it's actually the Attorney-General's portfolio. Well, they're um, both not Claire up O'Neill's. Yeah, yeah, but, I mean, this is actually the Attorney-General, and we saw that, out, you know, outburst by Mark Dreyfus towards journalists last week that it was an absurd question, don't interrupt. I mean, the arrogance is just breathtaking. Oh. So the Attorney-General is responsible here, and we were asking questions in the Senate about Ghazawi last week. So they have not been on top of this issue. We don't know whether they're on top of any other issue because mm. there are detainees uh, that are coming to the end of a full sentence or prisoners who are Australian citizens that will be released. Um, this isn't a case of, I think my understanding is Ghazawi is actually an Australian. He was born here. So uh, we don't have the option of being able to just right. deport him. Um, so this is actually a matter of law. It's a matter for the Attorney General uh, and he should have been on top of the game. And yet so I can just imagine his performance in a press conference if a young female journalist asked him oh, a question now whether you have a rant there. Uh, but this is actually uh, the Attorney-General's purview. They were not up to the task. They have not been across their brief. And the security of Australians is what is being put at risk time and time again because of their incompetence. Total incompetence. I've got to take a quick break. We'll be back in a second, Holly, and we'll talk about Queensland politics and the fact that we've got a new leader, which I think gives the opposition a chance at winning the next election. We'll talk about that after a break with Holly Hughes on TNT Radio. TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. The double standard is out there. It's so obvious. It's so frustrating. Eric Holder gets held in contempt of Congress for defying a congressional subpoena. Nothing happens. Obama's DOJ didn't pursue it. Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro defy a congressional subpoena. Joe Biden's DOJ criminally prosecutes them. Criminally prosecutes them for defying a congressional subpoena. And now we've got congressional subpoenas of Hunter Biden and James Biden, the resident's brother. And guess what? Nothing's going to be done by Merrick Garland, Barack Obama, Joe Biden's DOJ. That's right. I said Barack Obama. Obama's the shadow president. He's not the one pulling the strings. He wasn't pulling the strings in his own administration. You know, Valerie Jarrett was his minder. Where is the Iranian-born Valerie Jarrett these days? Haven't seen or heard much of her. It's because the Democrats are smart. Timothy Shea on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. I'm just going to do a little voice I wanted to alleviate my pain. 
I also didn't want to be who I was. I always just felt like there was just something wrong with me, and I was trying to figure it out, and I used the internet to help me do that. Seemingly out of nowhere, we've suddenly seen a huge spike in media depictions and social media depictions of transgenderism. It's even reached the mainstream advertising world. The people who are consuming this are children, 13, 14, 15 years old, and it's so easy for them to literally be groomed. I just woke up one day, looked at myself in the mirror, and asked myself, what the heck am I doing? When trans-identified kids are referred to specialized gender clinics, they're often told that they're going to get comprehensive, multidisciplinary mental health assessments. We know that that's not true. I was easy to manipulate. The ideology that has become dominant at these clinics is that trans kids know who they are, and therefore to question them is completely taboo. My childhood was ruined. Who's there for their detransitioning? Nobody. Nobody would help me because they had more concerns of me reversing everything. Did this thing to alleviate this gender dysphoria that wasn't there before, but you made it into a problem, and now your body image issues are worse. That's not supposed to happen. What do we do now? D-Trans, the dangers of gender-affirming care. For more information, go to PragerU.com. It sounds pretty good. It's it like, sounds real, it's dude. not bad, huh? This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Thank you, Ken from Arizona. Ken says, I was looking forward to hearing Steve Kirsch. Have you had Philip Altman or Senator Rennick on? I've had both Altman and Rennick on. Ken? But that was in the first half of the year. Um, we're almost expired for 2023. How about I put in a request for early in the new year for you? Uh, thank you very much for your very, very kind email. I will leave it on my diary system here so I can remind myself to do exactly that when I'm finished. Let's get back to New South Wales Liberal Party Senator Holly Hughes. So, so the Labor power brokers have wasted no time replacing Anastasia Palaszczuk in Queensland. The very unlikable and often nasty Stephen Miles will be the Premier. He'll be ably assisted by the more conducive Cameron Dick. I would have thought if Cameron Dick had got there, they stood a really good chance of winning. I think Stephen Miles is there for the plucking and maybe um, Mr. Christopher Fully, David Christopher Fully, would be rather joyful today. I would have thought this was an early Christmas present for David Crisofoli, them putting Stephen Miles up, uh, particularly because he is so closely associated yeah. with the absolute draconian measures that Queensland adopted during the COVID period. Yes. And no one is ever going to forget Anastasia getting up and saying Queensland hospitals are for mm. Queenslanders, you know, followed by stories of a mother who lost a baby and wasn't allowed to travel over the border to a Queensland hospital to be with it. Like, I mean, just inhumane activities that occurred under both his uh, his watch, Stephen Miles, as health minister with Palaszczuk. Yeah. So he is going to be a consistent and stark reminder uh, of what COVID was like for those in Queensland, uh, but particularly for those on those border communities. But, the, you know... It, the fact that it's the unions that have pulled all the strings in a yeah. room to make this happen, we are saying the federal government, you know, they've got 32% of the primary vote. 
it looks like they're only governing for the 10% who belong to unions. And now it looks like Queensland in for exactly the same on a grander scale because Stephen Miles has been handpicked, hand-plucked, put into this position by the unions and deals that have been done. So, as I said, I think it's a bit of an early Christmas present for David Christopher Bring it on. It'll be a full-blooded battle mm. in 2024 mm. for the Queensland Premiership. Now, two senior federal Liberal MPs have been confronted by the chair of the UN Women Australia Group over their criticism of the UN body for its two-month silence about the murder and rape of Israeli women on October 7. The UN's Georgina Williams contacted Senator Sarah Henderson and Victorian MP Georgie Crozier to complain about what they said. They are accused of dividing women simply by turning up at a Jewish rally in support of the victims. How she works that out, i got no idea. But it does show you what a weird, woke and woeful bubble these lefties in the UN live in, Holly. Oh, look, I mean, I know Sarah Henderson and I have, have talked over the years of believe all women, it's all women in the sisterhood, oh, but not conservative women. Conservative women uh, never get included in that. And uh, whenever there's an attack or, uh, you know, something that happens against a conservative women, we hear from the feminazis, oh, well, they deserve it because they're conservative. You know, and the things that I've been called over the years is, you know, I, I think I was a handmaiden at one stage or something. I had to look up what it meant, you know. It's that, almost nice. Well, yeah, let me tell you, the intent behind it is not. Yeah. Uh, but this is just completely unsurprising. It just now sees Jewish women being included uh, in the anti-sisterhood group, those that form part of this left-wing woke movement that purport to be for all women are not for all women. They're not for conservative women. They're not for Jewish women. I think the UN is, well, I have no time for the organisation pretty much, uh, and their left-wing woke agenda that they push. We know that the schools that are run by the UN in Gaza have a very anti-Israel and anti-Jewish curriculum. So this is just a continuation. Their silence over the rape and murder of Jewish girls and women um, is unfortunately, I just think, par for the course. Uh, but the fact that this woman had the gall to call up Senator Henderson and Georgie Crozier from the state parliament and, and berate them, I mean, I have no doubt Sarah gave her what for. Yeah, um, but I, just I think bet she did. <laughs> I just think it's disgusting. I wish I was a fly on the wall for that conversation. <laughs> um, but, you know, they did take two months to acknowledge yeah. that there had been the rape and murder of dozens exactly. of Israeli women and Jewish girls, yeah. and it's their silence uh, is absolutely uh, defining of what they truly believe. Yeah, it didn't fit with what they think of Israel. Mm -hmm. uh, here's one from Alex on the chat box. It says, I've had to go back to my audio stream uh, listening to TNT radio, but I'm 30,000 feet in the sky just he's just left San Francisco. Alex has. Um, I'm enjoying TNT Radio Live. It can be enjoyed and experienced anywhere. Also, great to hear Holly Hughes and Chris Smith discussing massively important issues. There you go. You're being heard a long way away. Excellent. Yeah. Um, last one. Um, this is like a postscript to the Voice mm. referendum. I haven't spoken about The Voice for about two months now. It's been joyful. Uh, <laughs> former Indigenous Affairs Minister Ken Wyatt says The Voice referendum question, it should have been split. Now, just <sighs> to, I'll explain that to, for everyone who may not understand it. 
uh, split in terms of voting for a voice. That is a panel with uh, direct access to the executive of government and then split in terms of the other question, which should have been separated, which was, do you want Indigenous people included in the constitution? They were too arrogant to split it. They were trying to be too smart by half, Holly. Uh, and Ken Wyatt was particularly nasty and abusive to his former Liberal colleagues uh, in regards to the fact that they wouldn't support the question that was being put uh, and that there had been offers of negotiation to say we will support Indigenous recognition in the preamble of the Constitution, you will get bipartisan support, and they didn't want that. They thought they could push through with this absolute zealotry of changing the way this country is structured via the Constitution, which Australians rightly and resoundingly said no to. Every single state voted no. The only anomaly in the country, and I think everyone would understand this, is the Canberra bureaucratic bubble, which just shows how directly out of touch they are with the rest of Australia, because everywhere else was around 60 to 40 uh, 60% no and stronger in some states like South Australia and Queensland. Uh, it is absolutely, you know, ridiculous for Ken Wyatt to be coming out and saying this. But what I will say is thanks, Ken, because I think you've gone off script. If you notice, you haven't heard from Marshall Langton, you haven't heard from Noel Pearson, no. haven't even heard from the Prime Minister or Linda Burney about this because they want everyone to forget yeah. They don't want to bring it up again. And it just shows for particularly Bernie and Albanese that supporting Indigenous communities, closing the gap, working with those most vulnerable was not their priority because at no stage since then we have put forward in the Senate a number of requests for inquiries into uh, Indigenous organisations where money is being spent, ask for an audit, have a look at Indigenous child sexual assault in Indigenous communities. All of those inquiries have been blocked by the Labor Party with their mates, the Greens and David Pocock. Disgraceful. So they are absolutely disgraceful. The voice was not about helping Indigenous communities. It was about ideologically zealots trying to change our constitution. Mm -hmm. uh, and the fact that Ken has come out, I would welcome him and others to continue to do so because we need to Australians to remember what this government tried to do when they get to go to the next federal poll. Very well said. Exactly well stated. Love it. Um, we will catch up earlier in the week next week because of yep. your very, very busy Christmas schedule. Um, but I look forward to that. Thank you very much for your time today. See you, Smithy. Have a good week. Good on you. Thank you very much for that. The New South Wales Liberal Party Senator, Holly Hughes, who we love having on the program. And Holly gets great feedback from all of you, whether it's on emails or social media or on our chat box as well. You can have a look at our chat box. Just go to tntradio.live. Go to the little ladder on the left top, uh, press that, you'll see chat and you'll see everyone having their say. But of course, you get VIP trip and if you jump on our talkback lines from the United States or Canada, one 201 6425 from the UK, 033-0024-1026 and from Australia or New Zealand, 1-800-670-310 to the news on TNT Radio. <laughs> Programming to bring you some breaking news. Breaking news. Flash. Now, TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a quick look at your TNT headlines. Another pandemic leader has fallen in Australia. Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk throwing in the towel on Sunday. Our best days are well and truly ahead of us. 
After being kicked off Twitter nearly five years ago, Alex Jones has had his account reinstated. Washington's triggered outrage after being the only member of the UN Security Council to vote down calls for a ceasefire in Gaza again. And Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's heading back to the White House. On air and on the app. I listen on the app. Stay up to date around the clock. I listen, therefore I know. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. I got an email here from Rita who lives at Jamboree Heights in New South Wales and Rita wrote, please add my name to your list of Alan Jones supporters. Thank you for your full-blooded support, but you are wrong when you say it is because he is a tall puppy. It is because he is a conservative tall puppy. If he was Marxist scum, he would bite the heads off kittens on primetime TV and all the useful idiots would ignore it and or make excuses for him. Rita then goes on to talk about someone I would prefer not even to talk about. Um, And then she says, I could rant for ages about this, but I know you get swamped with emails. That's okay, Rita. Fantastic to have your input. I appreciate that. I've had many, many listeners express that support for uh, Alan, and I've uh, passed it on to Alan as well. He knows what's happening at the moment, which is terrific. Well, the latest out of Dubai is that 80,000 delegates, yes, there are 80,000 at COP28. I went through and broke it all down for you last week. At the Climate Summit, they are a shattered group of holidaymakers right now. Uh, The Talk Fest is on the cover and broke it all down for you last week. At the Climate Summit, they are a shattered group of holidaymakers right now. Uh, The Talk Fest is on the cusp of failing in its ambition to forge some kind of agreement to rapidly phase out the use of fossil fuels. A diluted version has been proposed. Australian Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen told the COP that the group could not sign the agreement as it stood. So what does that mean for the immediate future of spending on global boiling? The net zero fantasy, what does it mean for that? And even what does it mean for your investments? Where should you be funnelling any extra money you may have access to? Joining me now is Greg Canavan the Editorial Director of Fat Tail Investment Research. We've had him on the program once before. Greg is Editor of Flagship Investment Letter, Fat Tail Investment Advisory, a service which uh, utilises technical charts and valuation analysis to find good growth opportunities in the stock market. Over the last 20 years, Greg has urged investors to put their biases and egos aside and listen to what the market is truly saying. It's hard to take the emotion out of that stuff, though, isn't it? Greg Canavan, welcome back to TNT Radio. G'day, Chris. It's uh, really good to be back, mate. Yeah, thank you very much for giving us some time. Just when you say taking out your biases and taking out your ego, is that what some of the less successful investors do, often vote out? you know, vote their 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 investments uh, on, their emotions? Absolutely. And that's where you get opportunities and, and that's where you can sustain big losses as well. If your need to be right uh, is, is uh, overwhelms your desire to make money, then uh, you'll end up losing money. So sometimes the market is telling you you're wrong uh, and you've got to accept that you're wrong and move on. There's always plenty of opportunities out there. And are you one of these people who would advise clients and uh, subscribers, would you say to people, don't use good money to chase bad money? In most cases, that's a pretty good rule of thumb. Uh, But there are some situations where there are just certain um, sell-offs that become very, very attractive 
And if you bought in a little bit too early and the selling continues, um, then it makes sense to add add to your holdings. But as a rule of thumb, uh, never chase losses. That's a that's a good way to look at it. All right, let's put the generalities out of the way. So, what are we learning from this COP twenty eight summit in terms of the short and medium term future of fossil fuel use, and of course, investment in fossil fuel companies? Well, I think what we're learning is that emotion is uh, is really at the fore over there. As you you said, it's on the verge of failing. I guess it depends what side of the argument you're on. Uh, the fact that there was a reluctance to to bring in wording around the the phasing out of fossil fuels is, I think, a bit of a win for common sense uh, mm-hmm. and for uh, the ability of the global economy to continue growing. Because the reality is. of the world's energy needs are still driven by fossil fuels. And as much as we want renewable energy to do the job, it is just not going to do it. So these gab fests where you get 80,000 delegates trying to urge the world to to move faster towards renewable energy is is really a threat to, to economic growth and a threat to the world's living standards. And I would point out that of the 118 countries that pledged to uh, triple their renewable capacity out to 2030. Both China and India were not a part of those pledges. Um, so that tells you they're the world's largest or fastest growing uh, emitters. Yeah. Uh, and as much as the West want to try to control or try to reduce their emissions, all it will do is transfer the industry to those two countries where the emissions aren't such a big deal. And overall, it doesn't make a huge uh, difference. Yeah, see, this is the point. Uh, you're exactly right. And if you believe that CO2, man-made CO2, is the devil, if you believe that, and I often think about the amount of subsidies we've been using in the last 15 to 20 years already, and yet we're hearing at COP28 that CO2, uh, the quantity of CO2 in the atmosphere has only increased so that tells me that this renewable nirvana is not the answer, but they've agreed to triple their renewables. Now, what does that mean as well? Does that mean that countries are going to go broke tripling their subsidies to renewable companies? Well, it means it's a massive gravy train and there's a lot of countries that are, can want to want that gravy, gravy train to continue. And if you look at the other side of the coin, if you think CO2 emissions are, are the devil, then surely you would be all for nuclear energy and putting lots of investment behind nuclear energy, which is far more efficient and emissions-free. Yet only 20 nations signed a declaration to triple their nuclear energy capacity out to 2050. So that really gives you a sense of where the priorities lie. And, and I think part of the, the tragedy of all this is that there are, there as I said, it's a huge gravy train. There are so many vested interests involved here that the real motivation is what can individual uh, market players, what can individual bureaucrats, what can individual uh, people that are all self-interested here try and squeeze out of governments who are really trying to run an emotional argument to uh, increase renewables on the back of this touchy-feely uh, type of um, vibe that, you know, we're all doing the right thing. We're absolutely not. You know, this is this is a threat to to countries' living standards. Everyone wants to, to move to a, a lower emissions future, but it has to be done sensibly. And if nuclear is not a part of the conversation, which it certainly isn't in Australia, uh, then we're, we're going down a slippery slope. Yeah. For most of the major nations around the world, nuclear is very much part of the energy 
future because you've got to produce baseload. And if they're going to, you know, throw us all into electric cars, Greg, they're going to need a whole heap more baseload than what we have at the moment. And that's not going to come from windmills, is it? Absolutely not. And and Chris Bowen's talking about phasing out our fossil fuel production, which is the source of most of our export earnings. I think yeah. coal and iron ore vie for the for the largest uh, export dollars, followed by LNG. It's a massive source of Australia's earnings. You phase that out, our dollar collapses, inflation spikes. There's no, it's not grounded in any type of economic reality whatsoever. And he's talking about Australia becoming an energy superpower. Again, this is a pipe dream. Hydrogen. Oh is years away from happening. And uh, I think Bowen will be one of the key reasons why Labor will possibly fail at the next election. That's interesting. Now you're speaking in political terms and I start to get very excited. Are you suggesting that this could be a one-term wonder because of a number of factors? They haven't fixed up cost of living. And we know that the government has had its eyes on other things like referendums, Indigenous welfare, uh, international travel, etc. We know they've had their eyes off the things that matter to about 99% of the population. That will hurt them. But to, to think that you've got someone like Bowen who wants to shut down our baseload power and to think that he'll get away with that, I think that is ignorant. So you think for those reasons, they are in jeopardy of losing the next election. Absolutely. It's all about economics and it's all about the middle class and their their standard of living. He continually tells us that renewables are the cheapest and lowest emissions form of energy. If you throw in the whole life cycle of energy that is required to produce uh, the uh, the renewables infrastructure yep. and the fact that they have a 20 to 30 year shelf life compared to a renewable uh, a nuclear facility, which is probably closer to 70 or 80 years, the energy required to produce their intermittent energy is still massive and it is not cheaper. The the record from around the world suggests that going down the renewables path means higher electricity costs. Once the electorate realises that, and I think this year is the first time they've really started to notice that, hey, this lie we've been told, it, it is a lie. It's not uh, decreasing our uh, electricity costs. Not at all. And at the electorate, they will put the blame on uh, Bowen for telling them that over and over and over. So I think it is a big risk. I, I think you're right. Let's talk about nuclear a little closer. There's been an agreement among 22 nations to triple nuclear power, easier said than done. Where are we up to in terms of nuclear investors? Because there was a major project that's fallen over in recent weeks. Uh, forget about Australia, because we're still living in the 70s, and maybe a new government will have the guts and the gumption to get uh, up to 2024 when 2024 arrives. Um, but where is the interest from investors in nuclear up to? It's a real tricky one. The, the problem with nuclear is that it has so many regulatory hurdles right now to get through and the costs are massive in, in building uh, building these, these reactors. That it is a that it is a difficult situation. The the actual host of the uh, uh, the COP twenty eight, um, the United Arab Emirates, recently brought on uh, a massive nuclear power plant called I think it was called Baraka or, or something like that. Yeah. That is working working well and producing huge amounts of energy. That's probably anomaly an anomaly in the world at the moment. Uh, the in the US especially, you have the the I think it's called the Nuclear um, uh, Regulatory Commission that makes it very very difficult for these projects to go ahead. But if you go back to the 50s and 60s, in France and the US, they were rolling them out 
in rapid time because there was no real regulatory hurdles to get this done. So it can be done. Mm. It is just very, very difficult for it to be done. And if you think back to that time, it was the Rockefellers who owned the oil interest that put a lot of these, started to put a lot of these hurdles to nuclear in place because nuclear is such an efficient form of energy that it cuts the lunch of oil, it cuts the lunch of renewables. And the, and the vested interests who are already profiting from the, the electricity and the energy systems don't want to see a mass rollout of nuclear because it is so efficient. All roads lead to, lead to self-interest. Um, now, talk to me about investor sentiment, because while 2023 has been an up and down kind of year, it certainly has been a year where uh, res- uh, consumers and business has been, I think they've been cautious that would be a good way to describe it. I can't see 2024 being that bad, and I reckon we might see a spike in the economy in 2024. What's your reading of it, though? Well, it all comes down to the interest rate outlook, and at the moment we've got pretty high interest rates in Australia, and while ever the threat of inflation is hanging around, the RBA is not going to be inclined to want to cut interest rates too fast. Uh, you've also got to consider that uh, monetary policy operates with a lagged effect. So we are still going to be feeling the effects of tightening monetary policy from 2023 into 2024. Uh, and the fact that the fiscal uh, stimulus that was very, very strong in 2023 is probably going to wane next year as well. So uh, my sort of view and, and what we're telling clients is that 2024 probably won't be a hell of a lot different to 2023. But if the RBA senses that inflation uh, isn't the threat that it thought it was, and it's probably inclined to cut interest rates a little bit quicker than expected, then perhaps that will uh, that will sort of soften uh, any any sort of blow on that front. But Greg, a lot of that has got to do with what decisions and what policies are put in place by government, right? Absolutely, and and you know part of what we've seen is this huge surge in 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 immigration. Yeah. Uh, the fact that energy prices are high are feeding into feeding yep. into inflation and I mean, wage just, increases just crazy wage increases uh the fact that you know there was huge amounts of spending on ndis there's there's just a massive amount of of money going into the economy but i think the government has sensed that that is a problem and they're going to pull back a little bit on that spending in in 2024 so it's not going to have the same impact and also you've got as i said you've got the fact that interest rates are really having an effect and certainly having an effect on on your mortgage belt which is another reason why uh, labor's probably in trouble uh, in the coming election you put it so simply your analysis is fabulous i love listening to you and i hope our listeners do as well greg canavan thank you very much for your time no worries chris thanks for having me mate no problem. Greg Canavan, the Editorial Director of Fat Tail Investment Research. I hope that was helpful. And given those major decisions or lack of decisions out of COP28, um, I think it's important to have someone like Greg Canavan map out what may be ahead for us and uh, map out what the future of nuclear is around the world. But in particular, baseload power has to be, sorry, fossil fuels has to be relied upon for our baseload power. And until we have uh, you know, renewable evangelists coming to us and saying, you can switch over to us now. We will supply you six times the baseload power you have already, which is what we're going to need in 10 years' time, at least. Um, we stay right where we are with what we know is reliable and quantifiable. Uh, right now, it is such a pipe dream. It is an evangelical prayer that's holding this renewable nirvana together. We will take a break. Happy to take your calls on our talkback numbers from the United States or Canada. 
Uh, those numbers, one 8 from the UK, 033-0024-1026, and from Australia or New Zealand. Come and have a say g'day and let us know what you think. 1-800-670-310. This is Chris Smith on TNT Radio. A year ago, I couldn't afford the rent anymore. I had no support and I was out of options. I had to sleep wherever I could. I thought, am I going to be out here on Christmas Day? Your urgent donation of £29.73 could help make this Christmas the first day of someone's life beyond homelessness. I'm so glad crisis was there. I could finally get warm. I had someone in my corner. I got something for you. This Christmas, I'm here. Home. Because my first day at crisis was my last day on the streets. This Christmas, thousands more people across the UK will be facing homelessness. We urgently need your donation. Search Crisis at Christmas or scan the QR code to give £29.73 now. Our beautiful world is changing, withering, dying. By the hands of those who don't value nature, even though we all depend on it for life itself. But there is hope. Together with caring friends, the Nature Conservancy can restore our lands and save our wildlife with big solutions only nature can provide. To learn more, visit nature.org today. Thanks for listening and being a part of The Chris Smith Show on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, I had something to say yesterday on the program about Stephen Smith, who is the ambassador to the UK at the moment, because what he had decided to do was to cancel Australia Day functions at Australia House because, you know, he obviously felt that Australia Day wasn't something to be commemorated because we should be ashamed of our colonial past. We should be ashamed of the fact that we're a first world country where everyone of every colour, of every race, is is in a, uh, is able to live into their 80s. That's the mortality rate that we have. Wasn't that way before colonisation? We have opportunities in terms of work and academia like never before. We have a first world judicial system. And I just don't understand people who want to be ashamed of celebrating what we have in Australia. But it's all about this Indigenous guilt that we somehow should be giving back the entire country to Indigenous relatives of those who were taken off from where they were. Look, I just think it's rubbish. The sorry, the um, apologies have to be over. We've got to move on together as a nation. We've got to celebrate what we have. There are, you know, trials and tribulations in life, and that applies to a nation. It has its trials and tribulations. We get enough negative, uh, negative news and enough negative experiences in life. Let's accentuate a positive because Australia is a very positive place to be. We are very lucky that we live here. And so someone has intervened. Stephen Smith has got egg all over his face. As a matter of fact, just bring him back from London before he drowns in all that egg. 
Acting Prime Minister Richard Miles says there will be an Australia Day function at the Australia High Commission in London next month, following reports an annual fundraiser would not be running. Here, here, well done, Richard Miles. Um, he said, there's no doubt there will be an Australia Day function in London at Australia House on Australia Day next year. What we're seeing from the leader of the opposition here is a shameless attempt to beat something out of nothing. Sorry, the opposition leader was only criticising what had been decided by the ambassador, which was ludicrous, outrageous, and such a shame. He was making political um, mileage out of it because there was political mileage out of it. How could you be so dismissive of our sacred Australia Day? But uh, there you have it. That's all on again now. So I would have thought Stephen Smith deserves to not only a wrap across the knuckles, but he also needs to um, probably uh, come back from his post in uh, the uh, elite part of London. In more media news, this is interesting, the news panel show in Australia called The Drum, which is on late afternoon, I think, on the ABC, um, has been axed. They've axed The Drum. The ABC's news director, Justin Stevens, announced the decision today with the program's three presenters moving into new roles, all gone. So they're not getting rid of the presenters, but they're getting rid of the show, um, which from my memory when I accidentally bumped into it on the dial, was a terrible left-wing view of the day's news and the week's news. And once again, you know, if you're going to go about that kind of approach, you're, you're going to block out many of the people who would probably want to see a news show at that time of the day. How about appealing to everyone? Uh, Boris Johnson has apparently proved to be a blockbuster with Australian Conservatives, so much so that organisers have um, set up a lecture tour for Boris. He's coming out to Sydney uh, for the John Howard Lecture, and tickets are sold out already. The Menzies Research Centre, a Liberal Party-affiliated think tank, had to boost this event's capacity to 1,000 to accommodate demand. 1,000? Boris Johnson, you could put Boris Johnson, especially in the Australian context, you could put Boris Johnson in a stadium and you'd get 30,000 people turning up. What are they doing? Limiting it to 1,000. Put it in Parramatta Stadium in Sydney. It'll be Johnson's first time delivering the lecture and his first visit to Australia since he was ousted as Conservative Party leader. He's since been rallying Western leaders to maintain support for Ukraine and Vladimir Zelensky. But there you go. Sold out the John Howard lecture because it features the one and the only Boris Johnson. couple of quick uh, comments. Um, one here from Daniel. He says, we are embarrassed by Stephen Smith. This is the ambassador to London. Um, I think we are. How dare he on the world stage criticise the fact that we commemorate arrival? That... <laughs> will commemorate the arrival of the English into Botany Bay on the 26th of January, but there he is representing Australia in Britain. In Britain. Like talking about not reading the room. Um, River says, good, you couldn't keep that clown over there, could you? No, he doesn't want to bring that clown back. He wants to keep him there. Um, if you're a rugby league fan in Australia, um, this is a massive story. 
and it's broken uh, only a couple of hours ago. But if you, uh, I, I'll tell you anyway, the entire West Tigers board has been dismissed effective immediately with Chief Executive Justin Pascoe also resigning from the club. Now, if you are a rugby league supporter, you're probably feeling like me. Hooray at last. This mob has taken more wooden spoons than they would care to realise, and they have performed so badly on the paddock. But not only that, that's been coupled with some terrible managerial decisions, some bad decisions on coaches and star players as well. And the CEO, or what do they call him, Chief Executive, Justin Pascoe, has presided over all of that. I can't believe why they didn't let him go three years ago. But he's gone, out the door, and so has the entire West Tigers board. Barry O'Farrell, the former Premier of New South Wales, will become the interim chairman, while Shane Richardson, formerly, of course, of the South Sydney Rabbitohs, will become interim chief executive. Now, that's a chief executive you can trust in if you're a West Tigers fan. The seismic changes at the joint venture follow an independent review into the governance of the club and a restructure officially endorsed by shareholders in a meeting on Monday night. The review was ordered by the Holman Barnes Group, the controlling faction on the Tigers board. And while the changes are subject to legal approval, um, it will happen. There's all saying it will happen. Now, I'm not sure what will happen to the chairman. Uh, who was also the, uh, that's of course Lee Hadjipentelis, he is also the chief sponsor. Um, but Hadjipentelis is out the door. That's all I know. I don't know whether he'll come back in some capacity or whether he, he'll pull his Bryden sponsorship or not. Maybe that's always been the threat hanging over the West Tigers, which is why he stayed there. But surely they can go to the market and find themselves another sponsor, like every other sporting club has to do. But just repeating for those who hadn't heard, the entire West Tigers board has been dismissed, effective immediately, with Chief Executive Justin Pascoe also resigning from the club. That means the chairman goes, and maybe with him goes his money, uh, the chief sponsor of the West Tigers. But look, can I just say, I think... That is a grand undertaking by those that ordered the review, and I think this has got to augur well for the future. Very much so. Now, just quickly from Canberra, the federal government is investing $170 million to make significant upgrades to more than 100 communities and locations across rural and regional Australia. Under the Regional Connectivity Program and Mobile Black Spot Program, the investment aims to narrow the digital divide in rural and regional communities. And I can just hear my bush mates in Australia go, about bloody time too. It's impossible to get decent mobile phone connection and especially broadband connection in the bush. And I know we're, we're in a big country, but urban Australia has been given precedence in this regard, especially by the NBN, and it's regional Australia that suffers once again. Well, at least there's $170 million going to improve this. Uh, it'll uh, provide improvements to mobile coverage issues. It'll fund public Wi-Fi, deliver fibre upgrades as well. And uh, that's a commitment under Closing the Gap initiative as well. So there's money associated with Closing the Gap initiative, which commits to helping First Nations people. So I don't care how it happens. I don't care what the reason is, but as long as those who are in the bush get a decent 
access to mobile communication and communication by a broadband. That's got to be a good announcement. I like hearing that. River says, great show, Chris. Good guests, good chats. Thanks to all. And Alex says, wow, the drum. Good riddance. There you go. A couple of quick comments on the chat box on tntradio.live. I will leave you in the capable hands of Dean Mackin. And uh, then, of course, um, Katie, uh, Katie Hopkins will be along after that. I'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Let's catch up then, eh? At the same time on TNT Radio. This is Chris Smith.